What is going on? Happy Thursday. Welcome to the show. Pete Callender here. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. And uh, if you don't have anything going on on Saturday, or even if you do, cancel your plans. Come and hang out with me and all of the good folks that are putting on uh, the big walk to end Alzheimer's. It's over at Gastonia's Rotary Centennial Pavilion, 107 North Street in Gastonia. Joining me now is Catherine Lambert. She is the CEO of the Alzheimer's Association, the Western Carolina chapter. Welcome to the program, Catherine. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. So tell us a little bit about this. Uh, this is like the big event, right? This is uh, not just for your organization, but for uh, the Alzheimer's Association uh, at large, right? Absolutely. Fall is walk season. Uh, most, most about 600 walks across the country take place in September and October. And uh, the walk in, in Gastonia, which is our Gaston-Cleveland-Lincoln County walk, um, it is one of 17 here in North Carolina. And there are others. As you mentioned, the Charlotte Walk is going to be a truest field. Uh, that's later on in the month on October 22nd, right? you got the Rowan Cabarrus one, October 29th. So there are tons of opportunities for people to participate. But this uh, uh, it's a really neat event. Uh, it's not just a walk, and it's not just a bunch of fun and, uh, you know, talking with other people that are going through uh, the same sort of uh, challenges that – uh, people who have Alzheimer's or have loved ones with Alzheimer's uh, have been going through, but uh, I thought there's a, there's a really uh, is a really neat event the the Promise Garden ceremony. Can you tell folks a little bit about what the Promise Garden uh, is all about? Absolutely. So the walk is is an awareness event and also a fundraising event that helps us uh, provide more research and also care and support for those going through the disease. But when you come together at any walk across the country, uh, in my mind, the most poignant moment is this Promise Garden ceremony. Every participant uh, is able to get a flower that correlates to their connection um, to the cause. So uh, we have a blue flower for someone living with the disease, purple for someone who's lost someone to the disease, orange for those that support our cause and the, the vision of a world without Alzheimer's, and yellow for someone who's currently a caregiver. And you'll hear a, a small story from representatives of each of those flower colors, and everyone in attendance will raise their, their flower of that color in support. And you really see in this ceremony the community coming together to lean on one another as folks walk this journey or share memories of having walked this journey. Well, and yeah, just looking at the numbers, um, there are about, what, 10.5 million people, I think, in North Carolina and of that population, there is about 180,000 living with Alzheimer's. And then uh, if you uh, include family and friends, uh, you're somewhere in the neighborhood then of about half a million people out of 10 and a half million that, that have a direct tie to Alzheimer's. They're providing care. They've got, uh, they've got it themselves. It, this impacts a lot of people. And my granddad uh, died from it years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to say that there's way more resources now available for families that are trying to be the primary caregivers uh, who have questions about this and even in the medical field. Um, but from because I remember, like, we did not know what we were doing. We had no idea what we were seeing, especially us as kids. We had no idea what we were seeing and how to how to best provide that level of care. And that's a big part of what you guys do. It absolutely is. And so uh, two things. One, if, if folks are more comfortable with the Internet, 
ALZ.org slash North Carolina. There are a wealth of resources, including uh, recorded programs that we offer. Uh, we also have our 24-hour-a-day, uh, 7-day-a-week helpline. That number is 1-800-272-3900. And I would say you can call that number for most anything. You, uh, The holidays coming up, you go home, you see your adult parents, and you think, wow, things have changed, but I don't know what to do. You can call, and we will help talk you through next steps. Um, if you've gotten a diagnosis and you're looking for resources, um, you can call that number. Uh, you can be far on this journey and have had a plan that worked well, and one day it doesn't. You can call us, and we'll help walk you through that. So those two resources, are, resources our website and our 24-hour-a-day, 7-day-a-week helpline, are critical for, for individuals in our community. It's one of the things also that you look back and you say, wow, we missed that sign. We missed this sign. We missed that sign. And then you kind of beat yourself up for not having recognized the signs. But also, there are a lot of people who mask uh, some of the problems. My granddad did. He you know, he pretended and he was of a different generation, right? But uh, he, he sort of didn't want, he didn't want anybody to know that he was having these kinds of problems. And that it, it, it layers on there. I mean, then you got the family dynamics on top of that. You've got a, a whole bunch of different uh, psychologies at play, and the earlier people can recognize signs, I think, and the, the earlier people recognize it in themselves, the, the better off they're going to be, the better off everyone's going to be. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Complicated is a great word to describe uh, the process you, you just talked about in identification, but as we have more and more hope on, you know, on the research front, and last week there was an announcement of uh, top-line results for uh, reporting out on a, a drug called lecanemab. It's not gone through FDA approval yet and all of that, but the results were incredibly positive with individuals with mild Alzheimer's or uh, mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's, so very early stages. And so as we have more and more things coming to play in diagnostics, therapeutics, preventative, early detection, early diagnosis, accurate diagnosis is going to become so much more critical. If we had a mole on our arm and we were concerned about it, we would seek a dermatologist and make sure it was okay or deal with it quickly. We need to be doing the same things with cognitive changes and having those conversations, difficult as they may be, with family and doctors. And we have classes, we have folks at that helpline who can help prepare you to have those conversations. So thank you. I, I, I tried my hardest to figure out how to pronounce that drug last week, and I mangled it in many different ways. So it's lecanemab? Le, lecanemab. lecanemab. I, I don't know why we can't name uh, <laughs> drugs more easily. I'm with you, but uh, lecanemab is, is the, the newest to report out. We will have more data, uh, a deep dive in November, and if that data supports those top-line findings, then um, you know, off to the FDA for approval we go. Yeah, and it was, if I recall correctly, it was it, it was pretty promising. I mean, the the results were really good. Um, uh, high success rates versus the placebo, if I recall correctly. Uh, it doesn't stop. It doesn't reverse it, right? It doesn't reverse Alzheimer's, but it can. It, but it slows it down, particularly early on, right? So this drug is dealing with that underlying biology, just like you're talking about, versus just treating symptoms. Yeah. Um, and what it attacks is the beta amyloid, which is that hallmark of the buildup of beta amyloid, which is the hallmark of Alzheimer's. Again, the results that were reported were in those with early, um, you know, mild Alzheimer's and co uh, mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's. And the top-line results showed a 27% reduction 
in cognitive decline. So if you think about that in terms of how much longer could you stay um, independent, basically if you think about it in terms of time, mm-hmm. you know, we have other terminal illnesses that have therapies that provide more time for people, and in Alzheimer's, that's more independence, that's more memories, and um, I think that's the piece that um, will be so critical to, to maintain that independence as long as possible. Get more information at alz.org slash walk, or you can call 800-272-3900. 17 different walk events. I'll be at the one in Gastonia on Saturday, along with uh, my colleague Ramona Holloway from our sister station, Mix 107.9. And uh, we appreciate all that you do, all that the organization has done. And thank you for your time today. Catherine Lambert, the CEO of Alzheimer's Association, Western Carolina Chapter. Thanks so much. Thank you. So you know what today is? It's not International Failure Day. That's that's the 13th. I could just tell you right now, I didn't get you anything. I know, total failure. But um, no, today is Thursday. You probably already knew that. But today is also the first Talktoberfest. Aha, did you know that? Well, maybe. Um, every Thursday night in October, Talktoberfest is occurring. Talktober is a live interactive conversation with the WBT team. On the Facebook live stream, or as I like to refer to it, the FaceTube. And uh, tonight it's going to be Bo and Beth from Good Morning BT. And uh, they're going to talk news of the day. They're going to talk about uh, licking CDs, I believe. They'll talk about uh, condiments and such. You never know. I'm just spitballing here. I have no idea what they're going to talk about. But I'll be there. I'll be hanging out in the comments section. So uh, if you want to join me, come on over. To the Facebook page, it's at uh, 8 o'clock every Thursday night, Talktoberfest 2022, presented by Kristen Bernard and Power Home Team, Keller Williams, South Park. WBT.com has all of the details. Hello, Winston. Welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing good, Pete. Hey, uh, this is this really is close to home, this Alzheimer's thing. I saw my dad uh, got Alzheimer's late in life and basically turned him into a vegetable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw it firsthand. But you know what I did? I started doing some research on Alzheimer's. And uh, it's a correlation with the environment. The environment effects of primarily aluminum. Aluminum consumption out of of Coke cans and whatnot. I've heard this before. It's actually more closely related to diet. Okay. Yeah, alcohol, sugars... Uh, well, processed foods, all of that stuff. Yeah, that's well, primarily aluminum. No, is, uh, is, is, is a smoking gun. But no. there, there are things we can do to counter. There's been some studies of, of the intake of uh, organic coconut oil, a teaspoon a day. Mm-hmm. That's that a healthy dietary fat. Actually, reverse some of the cognitive uh, 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 issues. But now I'm just really going to throw one out here. Yeah, know you know what, Winston? Like- hey, you know what? Uh, we're done. I appreciate the uh, the issue being close to your heart and all, and I'm sorry that it affected your dad. Um, but I also have had enough interactions with you to know that's your pivot, and so you're about to go down a path of conspiracy theories and such. And so I'm I'm not going to be I'm not going to have you befoul the topic of Alzheimer's uh, walks uh, to raise money and awareness for research and a cure. Uh, so I just I would prefer not to uh, to poison that that well, if you will. But I appreciate uh, the call, and uh, I am 
uh, I'm sorry to hear about your uh, your father. It sounded like it was the same thing with you know with my grandfather uh, grandfather. And a lot of times people when they would get old and they was just like, oh well, they're getting old, you know, and that's that's what happens. Uh, they you know they they just kind of forget things. A senior moment, right? You hear all of these euphemisms and. Uh, it's not always the case. I mean, yes, people forget stuff, and it makes sense as you get older. And you're, there's a thing called uh, neuroplasticity. Have you ever heard of this term, neuroplasticity? I got a, a pretty good, uh, I got a pretty good education on it uh, a couple years ago. Probably now about two years, but 2019, three years. Um, one morning I just woke up, I turned on my laptop and I started to try to do my show prep and I started looking at the screen and uh, I was seeing sort of double vision. I was like, well, that's weird. And uh, so, I, and then I started to feel, so I put on a pot of coffee, started to feel a little nauseous and I'm like, I, I may be getting sick, so I'm just going to call out sick. I don't want to get anybody at the station sick. Uh, so this was before COVID too. I know I'm a hero, right? I didn't get any, anybody else sick. So I said, uh, I'm just going to call in sick. And then, so I called in sick and then I laid down for a while. I woke up and the room was spinning. And what I later found out diagnosed as such quote, true vertigo um, in the left ear and a bug, basically a virus had landed just of all places in the body had landed on that vestibular nerve and blew out two of the three axes that uh, send the signals to the brain, and then the brain sends the signals to the eye, right? Because those that vestibular nerve, uh, it's like a level, you know, like the the tool, the level, little bubble thing, whatever, and it keeps your, it, it lets you know where you are in space, and it sends the messages to your brain, then the brain says, hey, you're moving to the right, you're walking forward, look in that direction, and the eyes follow, which is why, like, the babies, the kids, when they're learning to walk, they're always falling over, quite comically, because that signalization system hasn't been fully developed. Well, Mine got blown out on that left side and just from this bug. And um, so everything was spinning um, and and it was sending a message to my eyes that I was looking a certain direction uh, or I was turning a certain direction. And so my eyes would try to look there, but I wasn't turning that way. Meanwhile, the right side of the head on the right ear, vestibular nerve system, that's saying, you're not turning. What are you doing? And so it created this short circuit of a message, right? So it gave me the vertigo. And um, the and the room spinning and all of that, and what I was told, after two weeks, in the first two weeks, you've got, that's basically it. You got to make up all of the ground. You gotta you gotta go through the physical therapy within two to three weeks, and whatever you don't get done is not going to get done. Whatever damage has been done is then going to be essentially permanent. That's what I was told by the the therapist. So I got in right away and I was able to do that, but I still have lasting effects of it. And what I was told by the ENT was, um, the, or the audiologist, I guess, the, the ear doctor, he said that uh, it's a good thing that it happened to you when you were 46 versus 66. It's, it, it would have been better had it happened to you when you were 26 versus 46. But at 46, your brain still has some neuroplasticity it still is able to learn. It still is able to change. This is why it gets harder to learn languages as you get older and stuff, and we get set in our ways kind of thing. Neuroplasticity. Why kids can you know soak up all sorts of information, right? Your brain is able to absorb new things, is able to learn new things. And uh, it, the older you get, the harder that is. And so, like, to some extent, when you're looking, you know, for signs for Alzheimer's, you got to recognize that 
okay, yes, your brain is going to be less likely to like new learn these new things and that sort of stuff. You can do training, by the way. There there are brain exercises to do, right? But the long and short of it is that uh, a lot of people overlook the signs uh, and they just want to chalk it up to, oh, just being old. And then you end up looking back a year or two down the road and you're like, ah, you know what? That was a sign. I should have paid more attention to that. Like when they don't know where they were or they give vague answers or they somehow now are not ordering off the menu for themselves. They let other people order for themselves, that sort of stuff, little things like that. So trust your gut. If your gut is telling you something is wrong, trust your gut. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Um, so in the next hour, I'm going to be going into the voter ID lawsuit that uh, was heard before the North Carolina Supreme Court. I've got audio. I watched the oral arguments, so you didn't have to. You're welcome. And uh, I also covered the lower court hearing on the matter, the trial, whatever. It was on Zoom. Um, So I watched that. That was back in April of 2021. And I've got some highlights from back then. And because this is this this is the the appeal of that ruling which was a 2 to 1 ruling so i've got some audio so we're going to get into the voter id issue we've got the audio and the arguments and stuff and i am under no illusion as to how this thing is going to uh, shake out but first yesterday uh, yesterday we had on the program ted budd who is running for us senate endorsed by president trump ted budd is uh, he is running against, uh, well, he has more, I mean, he's got like three different or four different opponents, right? But obviously the the main challenger is Democrat, former Supreme Court Chief Justice of North Carolina, Sherry Beasley. You've also got Matthew Ho, the Green Party candidate, Shannon Bray, the Libertarian, and Melissa Lewis, the unaffiliated, officially sanctioned um, write-in candidate. So you got to have a you got to have a certain you got to do petitions and signatures in order to even be considered a legitimate write-in candidate in North Carolina. So, they will count her votes if you write her in. All right. So, there are a lot of stories right now in North Carolina media um about how Democrats are not funding Sherry Beasley enough. There is a big push among Democrats and media, but I repeat myself, in North Carolina to try to get outside organizations, outside uh, North Carolina, uh, uh, out-of-state groups, to pour millions and millions and millions of dollars into the race. Now, a lot of this is dressed up, uh, in media at least, a lot of this is dressed up as, oh gosh, can Sherry Beasley win? Oh gosh, does she have enough money? Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, where are these groups that spent all of the money? Keep in mind, any comparison to the last election uh, and the money that was spent is going to be tough to do because it was, su- it was you know, there wasn't, it wasn't, uh, uh, it was sort of an off year, right? So it was, you had Tillis, you had 
uh, Cunningham, and it was so expensive. When was that? No, that was two years ago. So it was a presidential race. This is the off year. So they had so much money into that race. It set all sorts of records, right? And maybe this does uh, uh, this time as well. The problem is for Democrats, they've got more seats to defend now. And the seats that they're trying to defend um, are are toss-ups. A lot of them are toss-ups. Let me actually jump over here. Let me do this because this was in... Uh, this was over at the John Locke Foundation, johnlocke.org, a uh, piece by Jim Sterling. He's a research fellow with the John Locke Foundation. It's a conservative think tank. Um, and he says, while progressives have not injected as much outside money this year as they had in 2020 in attempting to unseat Tom Tillis, their spending is ahead of what they spent for this Senate seat in 2016. That was when Tillis beat Hagan, right? I believe so. No, there it is. Uh, no, no, no. That was 16, 22. Yes, that was when Tillis beat Hagan. Um, sorry, you see, this is the problem. Like, it, all these things are now starting to run together. 2016? Was that Tillis? Hagan, 6, 22? Anyway, Democrats have invested about $2 million more for Sherry Beasley's campaign in the general election than they did for Deborah Ross's in 2016. Okay, so they're funding Sherry Beasley. The Democrats are, they're funding Beasley more than they did Deborah Ross when she ran against Tillis. It is likely that this increase in spending is being overlooked since North Carolina's last Senate race between Tillis and Cal Cunningham, whose campaign, you recall, completely tanked after he got the pictures taken in front of that grill. Um, That turned into one of the most expensive races in U.S. history. And because conservatives are simply investing more in this election in terms of independent expenditures, or IEs, these these outside groups. Republicans have spent nearly $25 million in IEs for Bud, with most of this funding coming in the latter half of September. Now, what Sterling does is he goes back and, and looks at previous spending over uh, the last decade. Republicans tend to outspend Democrats before September. Democrats receive more independent expenditures overall in the general election, right? So these outside groups tend to fund more money, uh, tend to funnel more money to Democrats. The IEs tend to go more towards Democrats. As we move through October, so we should expect both candidates to receive somewhere between two to ten times the current investment in these independent expenditures. If Democrats continue to invest similarly to the 2016 election cycle, Beasley could easily reach $50 million dollars. In independent expenditures by election day, $50 million. So why are we seeing all of these stories about, you know, crying poor? Like, oh, what do we really need to fund? Because people are afraid she's going to lose. That's what's going on. <clears throat> You've got political scientists. you got media. Uh, they're like, oh, my gosh, Beasley's not pulling ahead. There's all this money. We need more money, more money, more money. More attention. Abortion, abortion, abortion. <laughs> this is this is their focus because they're afraid she's not pulling ahead of Ted Budd, who's quite obviously such a terrible candidate. He was endorsed by Trump for crying out loud. While Republicans have invested a large amount of money into Budd's candidacy, it's doubtful they will have the same growth rate in the independent expenditures as Democrats. What's likely, according to uh, Jim Sterling, is that Republicans are going to spend somewhere between two or three times their current investment. Here's the rub. 
Democrats have 14 seats they're trying to defend. 14. Five of them are considered only slightly in their favor or they are toss-ups. So five of the 14. So it's just not a favorable election cycle for them, especially if they have to start allocating money. they got to take spending risks. Where are you going to put your money, right? Republicans are investing in North Carolina more than they usually would for the seat. And so because they're trying to keep the seat in the Republican column, this is a flip for Democrats who are trying to defend 14. Hence why the money may not be flowing. And I say that even after I just said $50 million. And by the way, there is some, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's be adults here, right? The, the realism rears its head here, which is that a lot of these media people who are saying, we need more money, we need more spending, th- their, their outlets derive direct financial benefit. I mean, you hear the ads running on our airwaves. You see the ads on TV. They're all over YouTube, everywhere, right? So these media companies, they, they're, you know, we are making money off of the political ads. So, you know. When they advocate for more spending, there is a little bit of a vested interest, right? News Talk 1110-993-WBT. That's the Grateful Dead. Um... So just a a heads up here, uh, if you're trying to email me or tweet at me, uh, I'm not going to get them. Our our Wi-Fi is down. So remember where you were at this moment in history. Uh, Or the Wi-Fi is down, so I can't get any of that uh, information. I, I, I I do have my phone here, so I will be able to maybe get some tweets. Uh, going, you know, going off of the Wi-Fi, getting up on the the satellite, but we shall see. No promises. So the best way, if you want to weigh in on anything here, is to just give me a call at seven zero four five seven zero eleven ten or one eight hundred WBT eleven ten, like Laura just did. Hello, Laura. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hi, Pete. Hey. I'm well. I love your show. Thank you. I was a fan before you left. Oh, hiatus. So, um, quick question, and I may have missed this, so please forgive me if you've already addressed it. The thing that just made me crazy and still does about Ted Budd is his absence, at least in my opinion, for the primary. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, no debating, really no public speaking, questions answered, and I can't quite get over that. And I... I don't know. Is it just me? Um, I felt like we deserved better. Yeah, well, I hear you. I I made the same argument during the primary. I told people that, like, I'm sure he and his folks are aware of the view, uh, especially here at this radio station among a lot of the hosts, that, uh, Mm -hmm. that they should have debated. Now, I also understand why this radio station probably is not going to be best suited to make that case to an opponent of Pat McCrory's, right? Because Pat Pat was here. And so we are viewed as, you know, McCrory adjacent, let's say. (laughs) And so and and like this is just uh, that's the reality of the situation. I get it now um, from a strategy standpoint. He didn't have to debate. Right. He won very easily. So, you know, do you 
I understand why they arrived at that strategy from a, just a political consultant standpoint. I, I understand it. It makes sense if you're leading in the polls and you don't have to debate because there's really like there's not a lot of stuff that can happen for you that is positive in a debate if you're the right. front runner, right? Um, and the other side of it is now Sherry Beasley. Uh, she didn't debate either, right? She had no debates. Right. So now we're going to get one between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, I. It wasn't my preference either, but it, the strategy obviously worked. And if we want debates um, as as voters in primaries, then that's going to have to be something that like we would have to penalize candidates for refusing to debate. But we haven't done that, so right, right. You, you know, we get we, yeah, we get what we vote yeah. for. <laughs> yeah, I, I know we did. I I, I guess I just uh, I feel like there should be a lot of work that we as voters see mm-hmm. being put into it. And um, it just didn't leave a good. Yeah. In my mouth. Well, I'm, I, I will tell you, I think there is a there is a place for the Republican Party, the Democratic Party. There's an opportunity for them, I think, for them to organize their own debates. I mean, that's what I would think. That's what a party should be about. Right. The party should be about getting people together, your own you know, registered voters, uh, your own party members, get getting them together and informing people out who the candidates are now that being said you know keep in mind what i just went over that you know there's not a lot of positive that can happen you make one wrong mistake and you say something stupid and now your candidacy is done right 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 so there is a there's a built-in incentive to avoid debates if you can yeah i get that i wish life was that easy for us right (laughs) (laughs) that's right well laura hey i appreciate the call thanks so much for uh for making it good talk with you Thanks, Pete. All right, take care. Um, so, yeah, and I get it. I, I made this case, and all I can do is make the case, like Laura made. Like, I, I wanted to hear debates because I didn't know. I still don't know. We're going to find out tomorrow night, right? We're going to find out um, how Ted Budd and how Sherry Beasley perform in a debate. We're going to find that out. And I, to me, that's important. To a lot of other voters, it might not be, right? So I try not to project upon other people my priorities, what I want to, you know, what I would like to see them do, you may not care. And obviously, my sentiment was not shared. A lot of people didn't need to hear from Bud. Now, I will tell you also that the Bud campaign, uh, they they said that, you know, they were going around the state doing town halls and doing, you know, uh, meet and greets with voters and stuff. They, they were doing lots of little events all over the state. That's where they were focusing uh, their efforts. And so... Uh, they were talking to people. They were answering questions. Uh, they were just not doing it in a debate format. And there is truth to that, right? Sure, there's truth to that. But it's not so, It's not also the whole story, right? Because if you're leading in the polls, that's why the people who are, are trailing in the polls, they are always the ones who want to have the debates because it's all upside for them. They're already down in the polls. It's the only way they're going to be able to cl- uh, climb their way up. But, you know, the inverse is also true. If you're at the top, I mean, what are you going to do? You're just going to beat on these people that are under you in the polling, and then, yo, you're picking on these people, and you have the opportunity to make a mistake, and then you're done, right? Then you lose your lead. And that's just, you know, there's a lot of decisions to be made.